Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by David Lorde, the author of A Time in Paris, a historical novel set during the siege of Paris of 1870 uh, and the subsequent Paris Commune. Um, and here we are to discuss really the, the history of that turbulent period um, and the characters involved, uh, notably. Uh, the French Emperor Napoleon III and the Chancellor of Prussia and then of Imperial Germany Otto von Bismarck and the uh, legacy of the Paris Commune. Anyway, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to David and let's talk now about Paris in 1870. Okay, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Now, um, I'm joined today by David Lordane, um, who has written a, a historical novel uh, set in during the Siege of Paris of 1870, um, the product of the kind of disastrous failure of uh, France to um, defend itself against Prussian invasion, um, largely the, the kind of the product of um, Napoleon III's uh, sort of failed um, kind of uh, saber-rattling diplomacy with Bismarck. Um, but we're going to talk to, to David now a bit about the book. Um, it's um, a, a sort of historical novel set during that period. Um, a little bit about the research and a, a bit about the, the kind of the, the significance of that period of time. So firstly, welcome, David. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. 
Yeah. Okay, David. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about um, a bit about yourself and a bit about the book and uh, the, the the process of researching and writing it. Where did the idea come from to set a? I mean, it's, it's actually you know I I'm, I I'm I don't know about the kind of the the fiction of that period, but it, it's a kind of a great a great concept. Tell us about the the the, the, the writing and the research of the book. Well, uh, for me, it followed on from um, some books that I'd written before about French history. Um, and, uh, the two main ones were um, historical biographies. Uh, one was of um, uh, Talleyrand, mm -hmm. who was the right-hand man of uh, Napoleon, um, and uh, who uh, finally decided that Napoleon was uh, mad. For conquest and uh, and uh, contributed to bringing him down. Um, the other one uh, was about uh, Danton. Uh, it's called the Giant of the uh, of the French Revolution, mm -hmm. uh, and so both uh, the books that um, which puts him in conflict with uh, Robespierre, mm -hmm. uh, the known conflict that was there, um, and. Um, so both of those um, led me on to thinking more about uh, what was going to happen as a result of the uh, revolution after Napoleon. Um, there was the uh, restoration of the monarchy. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, Napoleon III comes mm -hmm. to power, who is Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, mm -hmm. um, and does some fairly remarkable things, but also... Um, becomes very unpopular. First of all, uh, he came to power with the, through a coup, mm -hmm. um, which um, uh, always counted against him, especially with the uh, the, the the French uh, elite, mm -hmm. starting with Victor, Victor Hugo. Um, and um, and so I came to the um, uh, the siege of Paris because it was the most extraordinary moment. Uh, for the city. Uh, I live in Paris. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to you from Paris. Um, and it's quite difficult to remember that this city, until fairly recently, was actually surrounded by very tall uh, ramparts, mm -hmm. surrounded, um, which is why we have the gates today, the bot. Mm -hmm. As they call them, was, um, it, was it the kind of the transformation of Paris by Baron Haussmann that removed all of that, or had that was that some some other reason the ramp, the removal of the ramparts? Oh, no, uh, the ramparts were here. Uh, Baron Haussmann didn't interfere with the uh, oh, ramparts. Right. No, uh, he left them up. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure why, uh, except that uh, since part of the reason that. Uh, uh, Napoleon III wanted Haussmann to completely reconfigure Paris was that it would be easier for him to suppress the mob yes. should the occasion arise. These, these lovely, so, gigantic, great <laughs> boulevards that you can't build barricades down. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so my, my interest in France um, comes from quite a long way back, from school, really. I had a wonderful, uh, inspiring French master, uh, who we all thought who had quite a limp, um, and we all thought he'd been um, uh, parish. He was a, 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 an agent during the war with the resistance, and um, he was English, 
but that he'd been parachuted into France and broken his leg and uh, this sort of thing. But he was a wonderful man, and um, and he was a mentor for me too. And and as a as a result of that, really, I, I then went to university, studied French at Oxford. Um, and um, so I'm a Francophile, <laughs> unabashed Francophile. <laughs> I live in Paris, as I say. Uh, I married a French woman, um, which is a nice thing to do for an Englishman. Um, and, um, and so my my writing um, about France really uh, comes from all these things. Yeah, it, it does. It, it, there, is a, there happens to be a wonderful, wonderful uh, library, national library here now, which is fairly new, the Bibliothèque Nationale, um, which is the greatest place on earth for people uh, researching anything about France. It has You can bring up um, uh, any sort of manuscripts, books, in about a half an hour uh, from 1750 or so onwards. Wow. Um, so I spent quite a lot of time there. It's... It's in Paris, yeah. There are certain places, I mean, Berlin is another example of this, where obviously the, the physical geography of the city is suffused with its its history. Um, and it's almost as if the kind of the, uh, the, the, the past speaks to you from the... Uh, from, from the pavements almost. And, and in Paris, you do get that feeling about the place. Perhaps more so, more so even than London. Um, and maybe it's because of the the sorts of the the, the revolutionary transformations that Paris has had, and uh, the um, the several um, kind of uh, sieges and invasions that there, that there have been. But anyway, tell us a little bit about about the about the book. Um, it's obviously set during the siege. What is what 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 occurs? What is the tell us the tell us the story? Well, the, the background. The, the this is actually a love story that takes uh, place that evolves uh, during the siege uh, of Paris when everybody is trapped. To population of two million people, biggest city in the world at the time, mm. um, and um, everyone is trapped within the city. Um, and the reason the spark for the war is almost unbelievably um, trivial. Um, what happened was that um, the Spain, the uh, throne of Spain was vacant. Queen Isabella had been ousted. The throne was looking for someone new to sit on it. And um, Prussia, with King Wilhelm, of the Hohenzollern dynasty, uh, decided to put a candidate forward, a prince of the Hohenzollern line. Um, this raised uh, quite a hue and cry around the capitals of Europe. Um, they thought it was a bit much that uh, Prussia would uh, go that far. And he withdrew the uh, candidature. Um, meanwhile, um, Napoleon III, uh, was sort of spoiling for a fight with Prussia anyway. Mm. Uh, didn't think, uh, decided that this was not enough for him to informally uh, renounce this claim to the Spanish throne and demanded of Wilhelm that he formally uh, renounce all claim to the Spanish throne forever. Um, Wilhelm um, 
took the demand uh, quite courteously, uh, but said, look, um, I think I've already done enough on this. Uh, you know, I've made it public uh, that I've withdrawn the candidature. Um, and so as far as I'm concerned, that's that. Hmm. Bismarck, back in Berlin, gets hold of this uh, meeting where this takes place between the French ambassador and Wilhelm, gets hold of, of a telegram uh, explaining what had happened and uh, turns it by uh, crossing things out here and, uh, and um, never adding anything, but just uh, putting, oh, putting in commas, as the Germans love to do, um, uh, and turned it into a moment that was uh, a great insult, an unforgivable insult to Prussia and a humiliating come down for um, uh, Napoleon III. Uh, Napoleon III took this, uh, as um, Bismarck expected, took this as uh, 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 an impossible affront and declared war three, three days later. Yeah. That was, the, that was the actual spark for the war. The real reason, of course, for the war uh, was that um, the question of German unification. Mm -hmm. um, Bismarck had calculated that Bismarck, uh, this was his life's ambition, his life's work, unifying Germany, which of course was mainly Prussia, but uh, a host of, um, of um, sovereign uh, kingdoms and uh, duchies and bishoprics. And, um, and uh, his life's work was to unify Germany. Um, and um, he recognized that unless he Prussia defeated France, this would never come about. No. Why would it never come about? Because uh, Napoleon III had, had uh, become a kind of, uh, not a mentor really, but a sort of self-styled protector of the South German states, uh, Bavaria, etc., mm. which um, uh, Bismarck had to bring in to this unified Germany. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so this couldn't happen unless France was defeated and uh, no longer stood in the way of, mm -hmm. of unification. Three days after this, uh, uh, this meeting, um, with, um, uh, after the declaration of, of war, uh, they went to battle out in the uh, eastern uh, France, um, the Rhineland, and um, there was uh, some pretty bloody uh, fighting that went on over uh, July and August. Um, there were a huge amount of casualties mm -hmm. um, until suddenly, and it seemed to be a, a bit of a, a standoff. There was no result came from these battles until one day uh, early in uh, September the French Imperial Army collapsed at uh, Sedan mm -hmm. and uh, and um, uh, at Sedan uh, not only the entire Imperial Army was uh, captured but um, Napoleon III himself mm. was, was prisoner taken prisoner and they were shipped off to uh, to Germany where they were no longer any problem um, at that point, uh, Bismarck uh, also knew that um, defeating France, to defeat France, 
you didn't just defeat an army, you had to capture Paris. You had to take control of Paris, take charge of Paris. That had always been always been the case. People had uh, captured Paris before through history. There was even one of our kings, Henry the uh, Fourth, was it? Um, <laughs> oh, uh, one of them, anyway. Right, <laughs> right. That goes a bit far back for me. Um, and um, and so the um, the victorious Prussian army descended on Paris. Didn't take long to get there. And by the fifteenth of September, um, they had totally encircled Paris with. Uh, what was probably about 400,000 men came to mm. probably the largest siege army, uh, siege army that ever took the field. Mm. Uh, they totally surrounded uh, the capital. The um, uh, commander of the German army, uh, von Molke, Helmut von Molke, uh, decided that um, it would not be a good thing. It would be very difficult to stage a direct attack and that they would st try to starve Paris out. Hmm. So, so uh, all communications were, were cut. All supplies were stopped from coming into the capital. So Paris was uh, literally cut off, entirely cut off from the world. Um, this went on through a, it was extremely hot uh, Indian summer that year. This went on for a first month. Uh, the Parisians were fairly gung-ho about defending themselves. Um, they'd totally broken with um, uh, the uh, Napoleon III and had declared a republic mm -hmm. uh, in Paris, which was sort of de facto ipso facto the, Rep the Republic of France, as far as they were concerned, um, and uh, went on to... Uh, I'm sorry about that interruption. Right. Sorry. Went on to um, a, a second month, into a second month, into a third month, and uh, there were, they tried a few breakouts, but um, they didn't think that the breakouts were going to succeed, mainly because the uh, military governor of Paris, whose name was General Louis Trochu, who was also the president of this of the Republic, um, thought that the Prussian um, soldiers were invincible. Mm. Uh, he didn't think that the defenders of Paris had a chance. Uh, the main force that he had at his disposal um, he, he had maybe 70,000 uh, real troops, uh, but they were pretty demoralized by what had happened uh, out on the front. Um, he had some reservists and young uh, men from the uh, provinces, about 100,000 of those, mm -hmm. but the main, the main group of uh, men in some kind of uniform at his disposal uh, were members of what was called the the National Guard, the Paris mm -hmm. National Guard. These were the bakers and apprentices and barbers and uh, the dad's and army, workers of Paris. This, you know, the, the fathers and sons of Paris who signed up for one franc fifty mm -hmm. a day. They wanted to sign up, and there were uh, three hundred thousand of them signed up. But Trochu uh, decided that um, they he couldn't possibly use them. 
put them into the field against the Prussians, they'd just get totally slaughtered and they didn't know how to fight anyway. Half of them didn't have a full uniform and they certainly didn't have uh, rifles. Um, So uh, he sat tight thinking that the only possible chance that uh, Paris had of, of, uh, of winning, of driving the Russians off, was that it, the Prussians off, was that if the Prussians did actually try a direct assault, then in the streets of Paris, uh, who knows what, what might have happened. Uh, but um, they didn't. They did, um, they tried, uh, the, the, the Prussians uh, stayed there against the advice of Bismarck, who was getting very, very um, impatient. Um, he feared that um, if, unless this was done quickly, that Paris was captured quickly, that um, there would be intervention by the other European countries who didn't like to see uh, mm. Prussia uh, gaining such uh, pre- supremacy. Uh, particularly, he was worried about Britain uh, coming out um, and they didn't they, they stayed neutral in the end they stayed neutral mm-hmm. um, sorry this is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Oh, no, I was, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the end, they stayed neutral. The siege went on into um, a fourth month and uh, Bismarck was getting more and more agitated about it. And he finally convinced uh, from Moltke, the uh, uh, marshal head of the, of the Prussian forces, that he had to bombard, bring in the really big guns. They had a massive gun, which had been shown a couple of years before at the Universal Exhibition in Paris, um, made by the Krupp Company, which was the biggest gun that had ever been seen. And uh, he convinced uh, Moltke to bring these in from Germany. They were brought in by rail. 
Um, and um, that, uh, the bombardment of Paris, which actually only reached, uh, they bombarded from the south, it only reached the the, the Ile de la Cité, the Seine, mm. it didn't reach northern Paris. Uh, that, um, but mainly hunger, um, brought about the capitulation of the city, yes. which, which at the time had become... Uh, a, a very divided place between the, it's it quite a bourgeois a capital, but with a very large um, working class population uh, with with pretty strong revolutionary tendencies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, instead of this uh, republic, they wanted to, well, they, they, they were, for, the republic was fine, but they wanted it to be a revolutionary republic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so oh, this stew, of things brought about the capitulation mm-hmm. after into the fifth month. Yeah. So at that time, Paris was truly, truly uh, uh, famished. It, it's interesting to to think, isn't it? Because what what follows is the Paris Commune, um, and this very brief kind of revolutionary government, uh, which is is suppressed uh, by the Third Republic and. Um, uh, and revolutionaries for the for the next hundred years, uh, and count and, and sort of anti-revolutionary figures for the next hundred years, um, drew all sorts of lessons from the Paris Commune. Uh, you know, it's in in the writings of Lenin and Stalin. It's it's all and and Mao. They they constantly refer to it about what the communards did wrong and what they should have done and what we're going to do. And Hitler um, said, you know, something like the Paris Commune. You can't have things like that. You know, the the working the common man getting ideas above his station. That's something mm-hmm. you, must, you must never. You, you know, the, it, it would have been better if the the Prussians had raised Paris to the ground than let that kind of thing spread. So um, absolutely, I, I just would add as for back up what you said. As for Lenin, uh, he he did take inspiration from the um, the the commune, um, Paris, the, the second commune. This was um, not uh, because of how to of how to was successfully obviously carry out a revolution, but from what you learned about how not what to avoid, how not to carry out a revolution. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think the lessons he drew were, were you know, be, be utterly merciless with your class enemies, you know, take them out and shoot them because that's what they will do to you. Um, and probably some other, some other observations too, but I think that was, that, that was the key one. Um, and it, so you have this, this moment uh, which is relatively short-lived in time. Um, you have, prior to that, a siege which lasts for five five months, which, you know, when you're under siege, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 that's a very long time when, if you're surrounded by an army. But um, it, it, it's interesting how those sorts of hardships, famines, take revolutionary ideas that have probably been there for a long, long time and suddenly blast those into the kind of into the center of uh, of of that historical moment um i mean if you if you look at um uh, petrograd in 1917 um you know there there have been kind of 
you know, revolutionary ideas in Russia for half a, half a century. But there aren't really in Petrograd in 1917. There aren't actually particularly any any revolutionaries of note there. It's just this simply spontaneous outpouring of public yeah. anger that morphs into a revolution. And I, I wonder whether revolutions are always part accident. You know, they are yeah. part historical kind of chaos as opposed to sort of some kind of master plan. I think in the case of Paris uh, in 1870, uh, it wasn't um, an accident. Uh, it was coming anyway. There was great dissatisfaction with uh, Napoleon III. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of, it was rather lucky for the, the revolutionary movement in Paris that he was beaten, that he was ousted in that sense. Um, and um, um, they were held back uh, by this, this sort of division in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I say it was a very, it was a divided city. It, it was generally regarded as a bourgeois city. Uh, but there were the rumbling, they, they were already, the, re, the, the revolutionary element were already known as the Reds, Les Rouges, uh, uh, in Paris, uh, before the um, the uh, siege uh, mm. started. Um, so th- this, this, had been, this had been coming in this case. The Parisian bourgeoisie had done very nicely out of the 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 the, the Napoleonic, Napoleon III kind of era, hadn't they? It was, I mean, a... Quite a, quite a glorious time if you had a bit of money, um, but I, I think I mean Napoleon III himself is a, is a, one of the kind of the more fascinating characters of of mid nineteenth century Europe because he has this kind of you know famous or infamous family connection. He is a kind of I suppose you could call a, a, a populist figure in, in the way that we might understand it, it now. Um, quite a chancer. Um, and that's at, at times, you know, as, as a younger man, part of various revolutionary circles like the Carbonari in, 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 in Italy. Um, and, and also this sort of kind of cunning, cunning opportunist. And he, he's... He, he sort of, to my mind, doesn't quite fit with lots of the other kind of major major figures that you see during the time. He's sort of quite anomalous. But what do you, what's, what do you make of him? But we're talking about Napoleon III, right? The third, yes. Napoleon III. Uh, well, uh, he he had um, he had done a lot of uh, fairly impressive things. Uh, the Suez Canal really was due to his uh, to him building of the Suez Canal, uh, the uh, unification of Italy, um, which he uh, more than uh, supported. He supported it with uh, troops. Um, he had, um, uh, so he, w- he was a fairly big, pretty big figure uh, in Europe. And uh, as you say, the, um, the economy had um, done fairly well uh, as a result of his uh, the good things that he'd done, um, and so the bourgeoisie in Paris were uh, pretty happy with him on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, again, uh, in, in this, in this uh, group of people, this large group of people, what we're calling the bourgeoisie, uh, there were those who, were, uh, who never forgave him uh, because he came to power by a, a coup d'etat. Uh, in um, uh, he he actually first of all became president and then became uh, then became mm-hmm. emperor uh, through a coup, coup d'état um, and people and the the intelligentsia in Paris uh, never forgave him for that uh, first of all uh, Victor Hugo uh, who went who exiled exiled himself and sort of through literary bombs at him from the Channel Islands uh, over the next 15 years or so. Um, so, he, yes, he was an ambiguous, an ambiguous figure. Um, but um, when he uh, was ousted, uh, he clearly wasn't very much missed. No. Um, what, ha- what happened when uh, the, the, the really horrific thing that happened, which we were referring to just now after the commune, um, the commune was um, was um, uh, bloodily uh, suppressed uh, by uh, a, a new government in France, um, which took over from the republican uh, ministers. Um, on the capitulation of Paris, they uh, abandoned the government um, and elections were called, which Bismarck thought was a good thing to do. Um, and a new government was formed, and it was a very conservative government. Mm-hmm. And and, they, and and it sat in um, Bordeaux, first of all, because uh, they thought it would not be safe to sit the deputies in Paris. Mm-hmm. And it would not have been. Um, and gradually, um, the man in charge of that, of, of course, was Thiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not a totally conservative character, but is but the the uh, government that he formed had to be very conservative. It was made up of uh, country squires, basically, um, <laughs> as they called them in Paris. It was a country bumpkin government, um, and he formed an army and um, to gain um, the the commune in Paris. Of course, was a uh, an obstacle to a new French government having power because the commune thought of itself as the power in France. He brought up an army to Versailles, um, quite big in the end, and uh, attacked uh, the commune um, uh, with, uh, in, in a way that the uh, Prussians had always uh, refused to do. Yeah. Uh, they went, they broke through. They broke through the uh, the walls of Paris. They broke through the gates, came swarming in from uh, uh, Western Paris, and um, and uh, there was uh, the fighting with the the Reds, um, which resulted in uh, a lot of wonderful monuments being burnt, mainly the old uh, uh, the old um, uh, Hotel de Ville which was a beautiful medieval building that was burnt to the ground. Um, the, um, the palace, uh, the royal palace, uh, although it wasn't totally destroyed, um, but uh, it was largely destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, a terrible moment because um, once the new government under Thiers uh, had gained control, 
they started slaughtering the uh, the rats, mm-hmm. and the estimates are that anything of up to about thirty thousand yeah. of the revolutionaries, the members of the commune, were slaughtered in this. Yes, yes. And so this, this was sort of an incredible ordeal upon an ordeal that Paris had already been through. So it was a, a really a horrific moment in French history. Yeah, and it's one of the again coming and coming back to this, you know, the lessons that Lenin learned. It was you know, during the Russian Civil War. He said, "Well, that that's what will happen to us if we, you know, if we allow counter revolutionaries to, you know, to to prevail." Now we we we, we draw to a, a close in, in in a moment, but um, I, I, am, am I to imagine that the the book is currently available in all good bookshops? Um, is is it is it published at the moment, or um, is it awaiting? A yes, it's, it's published. I'm not sure uh, whether all good bookshops have it. I hope that Daunt's, for example, okay. does. It's certainly, okay. it's certainly available. It's certainly available on the, on the so internet. It's, it is um, a, a, a time in Paris by David Lauday. Just a word to the to the to the listeners. Please, if you can, do try to support your independent bookshops. They really need your help. So please, if you can, if you're going to buy the book, please get it from, from an independent retailer. Uh, so my, my public service announcement for the day. Um, so, David, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And Let me just add one thing, by the oh, way. Please do, please do. If I, if I may, yes. uh, because the consequences of this are... Uh, argued over, but um, the the consequences were were pretty significant uh, because France uh, never, uh, um, as Victor Hugo uh, predicted, France would never sleep until it got its own back from that. It lost its precious provinces in the in the east, uh, Lorraine and and uh, Alsace uh, to Germany, um, and uh, indeed it never did. The spirit of uh, getting our own back was always there, which which was led. Uh, inexorably to the First World War, mm. thus hence to the second. And as you were saying, there was a certain amount of inspiration taken from all this by Lenin. Thus, uh, the um, the um, uh, Russian Revolution. Uh, but uh, this is just to <laughs> to take it all forward and to and to um, give some kind of idea of what I think is the significance of what happened in this book. But I think there's a very famous quote by Disraeli just after the Franco-Prussian War, where he said he said essentially this this kind of diplomatic or uh, kind of geopolitical revolution had happened, and he said and the main the the main victim of it all is Great Britain, um, which is perhaps a difficult one to maintain. But he said basically there's a, a whopping great German empire on the continent now. And our old policies of divide and rule, um, you know, perfidious Albion and all that, are, are going to come up against a really significant power. Um, and centuries of uh, Anglo-French animosity by the kind of the 1890s, just 20 years later, are reversed with all sorts of reproachments. And then in 1904, in 1904, we have this, this Entente Cordiale. And so it, it makes, these sorts of things make strange friends uh, from time to time. Anyway, there we must finish. But it, again, it's been a, a pleasure to talk with you. And I would, if you're willing to 
come back on the podcast at some point to talk more about Paris, it would be my pleasure to talk about it. That's kind of you. Thanks so much. Um, Have yourself a great day. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.